former prisoner and inmate. New York City. series and um you know i'm gonna try to stay focused on one thing the add just gets me off track i start to begin a story and then end up in five other stories down the road which is just who i am so you're gonna have to get used to it in my mind i have a format i'm going to follow so anyway trying to give you a full backstory of what led to me first being in prison and then becoming a writer and all that but there's some interesting stories along the way so i'm gonna keep rewinding it keep it kind of in the background and try to tell you what led up to me becoming i don't know Guy. I don't want to say the bad guy that I became, but I was a bad guy. And then it'll lead to how I became a better guy, a good guy. Kind of change it up. I um, I drink tea, so anybody who wants to judge me, feel free. It's uh, chaga. If you've never heard of chaga, it's an interesting fungus that grows on birch trees in Michigan. So the Indians believe it's a, like a miracle curing like medicinal fungus. And I found some last year and I climbed a tree and chopped it down and I put it in tea and I bono manjade and enjoy your food, drink, whatever. And by the way, this interesting mug says Nassau and the back of it, it says, I used to be a rocket scientist. There's a story behind that. I had that made in prison. Uh, I couldn't make it myself. I didn't have the skill. But in prison, they had like these hobbycraft guys who would make stuff and go in the way. Anyway, my wife, who collects mugs, broke one of her favorite mugs. It was a Nassau mug. And people would see it and go, Nassau? Where'd you get that? And she'd joke. And I used to work for Nassau. And they all thought she was super smart, which is. But she told me it was, she dropped it and broke it. And she was really bummed about it. So I, to be funny, I had this guy. And it just says Nassau on it and then around the bottom it says I used to be a rocket scientist anyway it's funny like I said these have so many stories in fact prison story let me tell you a, a quick story what happened today I was talking to Ryan Ryan Leone and we were going back and forth about what it's like in prison like he was in federal prison he did do some state time I think for a little while I think like Wisconsin or, or Minnesota or something but talking about child molesters you know everybody hates them in prison but it's different in every prison. Now, state prisons are a lot more dysfunctional. There's a lot more just crazy people and criminally insane and just lunatics and really just, you know, murderers. And now, in federal prison, you have more of a blue-collar type of criminal. It doesn't mean that you don't have bad criminals like crazies and stuff in feds either. But there's a lot of, like, child molesters and rapists. I was telling them how one time there was this guy. What the hell was his name? Shane. Funny, I remember his name. It's in Ken Ross Prison, by the way. It's the second most violent prison in the country at the time. There had been 288 stabbings in the first eight months of this prison. That's how bad it was. A couple of murders, it was just, it was bad. So originally it was built to be an Air Force base and they converted it into a prison. So he had these four man cells. So this guy, Shane, it was my bunkie. And we ran his plates, which means, you know, checked out what his case was. And he had already been in trouble once for like, being like 30 years old with a 13 year old. Then he got caught again, like 35 with a 14 year old. He wanted to marry her and I was like, sick man, he's sick. So me and my other cellmates, we kind of just, you know, make fun of him, mess with him. I didn't, you know, I was only had like four years left, so I wasn't gonna terrorize the guy too bad. But I've ended up punking him out because he kind of got lippy with him. 
And I told him, I'll freaking smash your head. I, I jumped off my bunk because I was on the top bunk. He was below me. I jumped down. I said, bro, you get cocky with me. I'm going to smash your freaking head in. That's it. You know what I'm saying? I'm playing no freaking games in here, man. I'll, I'll just smash you. But one time, then a couple days later, he gets cocky with me again. I said, bro, I'm going to come down and smash your effing head in. And he jumps up like, well, what's up? You just do. You got a knife. I, I jumped straight on my bunk, grabbed him by the throat. Like, picture it. Grab him by the throat. Smack him. Smack him silly. Just like, what the fuck is you three or four times, bam, bam. I hold his arm though, I kind of twist up his shoulder because I got his arm with the knife, you know, he's got the knife here and I'm just cracking, bam, bam, bam. I said, you freaking crazy, I'll kill you. Now take that knife, cut your freaking head off. I take the knife and uh, I don't even think my wife knows this story because I was with her at the time. I didn't want to scare her or freak her out. So some of the stories I didn't tell her, so this is what it is. But anyway, I twist the knife out of his hand and then I take it and I throw it, hit him right in the face, bam. I said, now pick it up, use it, I dare you. I said, I'll take that thing and cut your effing head off. Bottom line, I said, you touch that freaking knife, it'll be the last thing you ever touch, motherfucker. And he's sitting there <laughs> shaking and freaking out. Anyway, my other bunkies were kind of laughing. They didn't like me either. He was a douchebag. Now, I was a little worried that he was going to go tell on me. Uh, by the way, glasses. I don't know if you know this, but that's another prison story, too. I, I wear glasses because I'm sensitive to light. I get injections in my eye. Literally a needle in the eye. And I've had like 25 of them. And that happened in prison another sidetrack rabbit trail here and i woke up one day and i couldn't see man it's all blurry like an eye booger what the hell well, i went to medical i had you have to put in a kite to go to medical and it takes three four days for them to call you over there and then when you get there they're like well we're not eye doctor right there the eye doctor comes in once every six weeks so i waited five weeks for the eye doctor to come he looks in my eyes there's blood in there so they sent me off the compound to a specialist downtown detroit called the Detroit Institute of Medical, whatever. So they tell me that a blood vessel had burst in my eye and caused permanent damage. So I had to start getting these shots and I'd have to go down there about once every three months, the next three years and get shots. And they were just real bitches. How they'd take me off town, shackle me up, treat me like I'm an animal. And they all, um, belly shackled, leg shackled. Sometimes the cops were cool. They would just cuff me. Then you have a lot of douchebag cops would, you know, ankle everything. They put this taser thing on your leg. Like, so if you ran, they could hit it. <laughs> Just real bitches. I had one little freaking guy one time when I was coming out of the bathroom. I said, I use the bathroom. So, because sometimes I make two, three, four hours before I get seen by the doctors. This crazy place is downtown Detroit. It's a million, like, an indigent people coming in there to get out. And so here I am. I got two cops guarding me. I'm in this little room and I got to take a leak. So they walk me to the bathroom and I walk out and the drinking fountain's right there. So I'm thirsty. So I'm walking out and instead of turning left to follow that, the cops who've been waiting for me, I'm like, oh, like that. And I turn and this little skinny black cop, he grabs, who are you? And he like, grabs his gun and cries, what are you? Whoa, relax, bro. I'm just trying to get a drink of water, man. I got a year left. You think I'm down 13 years? You think I'm gonna make a run for it? What if 12 months left? <laughs> Settle down. He's huffing. What are you doing, man? So I get back in a little holding cell. I'm all the way out there. I said, man, you need to chill out, bro. You drank too much coffee. <laughs> you need to relax, bro. So this is a little skinny ass, bro. A little wormy, squirrely ass dude named Officer Lyons. And so I'm sitting in this little room. And I'm just chilling, and he's staring at me, pacing back and forth, back and forth. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got something for you. And I was like, I'll tell you something, man. I said, you and I both know, if I wasn't in cuffs right now, and we were in the world, you wouldn't do shit, because I'd beat the shit out of you. That's the bottom line. That's the real reality. So you can talk to tough man stuff all you want. You got something for me, bottom line. I'd end up fucking your ass up, and that'd be the end of it. So, you know, be honest with yourself. He's like, yeah, yeah. I said, and I'm like, yeah. You know that, I know that. Well, the only reason he didn't get crazy tough with me, because he had a partner, and it was a chick. 
and she knew that I didn't try to make a run for it, try to escape or nothing like that. So anyways, he couldn't write a report that said that I tried to escape. Um, there's too many witnesses at the hospital. Cause I'm, I was worried that he could go back to prison, say prisoner attempted to escape. And then that's like a five year felon right there. Five years bit. They say you tried to escape. But the chick with him, she wasn't nice, but she wasn't like a foul, you know, where she would just do me dirty like that. So anyway, I walked away from that. But anyway, my eye ended up being messed up permanently. So I have to get these injections. And so that's the uh, the issue with that and why I wear glasses. I'm not that cool. Uh, my wife thinks so, but I'm not. So anyway, what was I going? Back to prison with the uh, the child molesters, I think is where I was going. Um, for, oh, this dude Shane, man. So I was smacking him, he locked up. So he ended up locking up or checking in. Basically, he goes to the counselor or a cop and says, my life is in danger, I can't stand this compound, you have to put me in the hole of protective custody and get off. And I was worried that he was gonna tell on me because I did smack him around. And actually, I was worried that the, the cops heard because I was in the first cell from the officer station. And so when I did it, I was being real quiet about it. But you know, there's these lockers, I slammed them against the lockers, but they didn't hear nothing. He didn't tell on me. I heard that he said that he got in gambling debt and they checked him in and locked him out, wrote him out. So, you know, that's the kind of how the child molesters get done. A lot of times in prisons, I mean, they just walk around and nobody even messes with them. That kills me. When I first went to prison, I was bad, man. I had a, I had a chip on my shoulder, I didn't even care, man. I get to prison and I was hanging out with these Mexicans and they're like, those are all the child molesters over there. I just got down out of quarantines and I go, what? what, what where at that table over there it's all molesters and rapists and crap i could watch this i walked straight over i remember it was chicken day and i can proceeded to do this with any good meal i walked right over like lean over the table i'm like what's up fellas bam grabbed the chicken off their plate boom put it on my plate and like looked at them said i dare you say something i dare you and they'd sit there and i do that all the time and then there was this other one his name was robert morello I'll never forget him. He had became my bunkie, my cellmate. This is level four, where you're locked down 22 hours a day. And uh, he was like this little squirrely bald dude who was in there for rape. Kind of muscle bound, kind of athletic, but just, he thought he was tough. Like he would kind of talk grimy to me. And I always beat your ass, you know what I'm saying? But he didn't, whatever. And uh, he didn't really get tough with me. Eventually he said something that made me snap. And I remember smashing him all over the cell, smacking him around, smashing him. But I ended up smacking the shit out of the dude in the cell. He tried to fight back a little bit, but I twisted him up. And then Prince Dunk smashed him against the locker. He was like, I'll kill you. I said, if you tell on me, man, I'll have you killed. And somebody you love killed. And I was just bluffing, you know. I wasn't going to just freaking go have somebody killed over nothing, man. But I was scaring him, you know, letting him think. Not that I couldn't have, but I was just, you know, I'm not really that kind of guy. So I basically, I had, at that time, later on, I had a bunch of restitution for, like, court crap. And they, like, they popped up, like, five years into my bit. And a couple, two, three thousand bucks. And my boys and my wife paid it off because I wouldn't be able to get commissary. But at the time, I only owed $750 in restitution, which was for smashing this little black kid who stole something from me who in my locker. And I think I talked about it last time when I caved his orbital socket in, right? So they didn't actually charge me for the, the surgery they had to do to fix his face, but they did charge me for the ambulance. Like 750 bucks, so when I'm in prison, now I can only get half of everything money sent to me, half of everything over 50, when it would suck. And I told the freaking dude, Robert Miller, because he had money, his dad, you know, he's an adopted dude, dad had a bunch of money. So I said, bro, you're gonna pay off my restitution or I'm gonna kill you. That's just it. Just in the game, went and stuff, and I pulled out some addresses that I took out of his stuff. I said, see these addresses? You know, your family? I know where they're at, bro, so don't make me send somebody. And he told his dad he had to pay, and they paid. You know, they, they paid off my restitution. And I made him give me 20 bucks a week, I think is what I charged, out of the commissary. So he gave me 20 bucks a week. And, uh, and after that, you know, he was 
it was my bunkie, he was harmless. I never really worried about any kind of threat or anything, but eventually he ended up telling him. Got tired of it and told, said that I was extorting him, said I was making him pay money to be on the compound, blah, blah, blah. And then he locked up, of course. And I, like, where's the proof? What are you talking about? I ain't no proof. The guy, you can't just say a guy's extorting And so they did an investigation and nothing came up, but they just, whatever. And then they stuck this crazy ass dude named Cochran in my cell, who's a lunatic. He talked to himself, black dude, talked to himself all day, like doing legal work, man. He'd be like having conversations with himself and literally say self, self. And it was crazy as hell. He was in there for killing a guy. He just did 20 years for killing a guy with a knife, got out, was out like six months, killed another guy with a knife. Now he's trying to claim his, his innocence, right? It's his neighbor. His neighbor told him to be quiet, make a bunch of noise. He went down there and said, hey man, chill out, I'm making all this noise up there. And the guy's like, F you, the F you, and he went and grabbed the knife. So anyway, the dude though, Robert Morell. So I don't see this dude, I don't know what happened to him. 10 years go by, 10 years. I've been to five different prisons and I end up at this prison called Ryan Road, which is in Detroit actually. That's the first time I've been close to home since I freaking got down. And I, the very first day I'm in the child hall, I'm sitting in the child hall, cause you always want to kind of look and see who's coming and going. See if you recognize friends, homeboys, or whatever, if you recognize anybody from the streets or enemies. You know, I didn't have a lot of enemies. I had a couple, but I mean, nothing major, but you always want to be alert and aware of like who, who's who when you get to a prison. You get to a new compound, you gotta know everybody. You gotta know who the heads are, we know the gang heads and the Muslim heads and the leaders of that and that and black. It's kind of good to know, you know, so you can stay out of the way. And I see this freaking punk ass Robert Morello coming through. I see him before he sees me, and he got a big slash down his face, the scar. They call that a buck fifty in prison, where somebody got him. You know, they just walk up with a razor, slice their face up. I'm not saying I was responsible for that, but I mean, I had a bunch of homeboys and, and that knew who he was, so it's very well possible that you know. You know, I'm not saying I gave the order, I'm not saying it didn't. But he saw me, he, he looks over and he just freezes right up and he actually like didn't see me. He's like, walks straight through, gets his child. I don't even think he ate. I think he grabbed his tray, walked straight through there, walked out and locked up because I never saw him again. Never saw him, one, not one time after that uh, on the compound. I looked for him, you know, for a couple of days. I'm like, he ain't here, he locked up. He, he knew what time it was, he, probably for the better. Back to freaking uh, child molesters and rapists. That dude climbed through his own brother-in-law's house for his, his like sister-in-law by marriage. He climbed through the window and tried to rape her. This little squirrel-ass punk, you know. He said it wasn't him, of course it was. You know, she recognized the dude. He had a mask on. She definitely recognized him. She knew it was him. He had just called her saying, hey, I care about you. I like you. You know, I won't tell them if we have an affair, blah, blah, blah. She's like, what? Freaking weirdo. Get off me, you know what I mean? And that was that. And then like that same night, he comes climbing through the window. Go figure, you know. So, I mean, I got no love for child molesters. If they get their asses smashed and stomped, you know, I used to be the guy who wanted to be the executioner. I wanted to be the guy who executes these punk ass dudes. Now I leave it to God. I leave it to God and um, let him worry about, you know, the judging, the consequences. But uh, back then, I guess I was part of the consequences. So anyway, so I was gonna go back to like eighth grade. Where did I go wrong? Where like, where did the fork in the road start for me? You know, where did I go from an innocent kid, although troubled kid, from a dysfunctional home and a dysfunctional background, but where did I like take that turn for the worse? And I think it was eighth grade, my second time in eighth grade, when I, you know, I failed and I had to go back. And now I just, just had a chip on my shoulder really bad. Just didn't care anymore, didn't do nothing. So that whole year, what I lasted through, I ended up getting expelled indefinitely. All I did was just sell dope and be a menace to that school. And almost every day I would get called down to the office to get searched and frisked. Now keep in mind, this is like 1988 or 87, 88, 14, 15 years old. I'm the only kid in school who's got a moped, like a tricked out, pimped out moped. 
It's, it was all black and purple spree, if anyone remembers that. And it had a, like a fur seat cover, a stereo on it, a fuzz buster. I pull up every day, parked that. Mine was rocking, you know, three, four hundred dollar troop jackets, big gold chains, like like the kind in, in rap videos in the eighth. Big stupid rope chains with medallions. I'm in eighth grade. So they knew what I was doing, you know, selling dope. I didn't bring it to school or nothing like that. I brought maybe a little weed to smoke to school once in a while, something for a friend. But back then, weed wasn't like as prominent. People didn't smoke at all. Like very few people smoked weed in eighth grade. Now the kids today, they're all got a pen and they're, and they're going to town. Back then, there was maybe like 10 kids in my whole school who smoked weed. But I always had a little on me. I had like these three, four, five hundred dollar troop jackets. I had a fur nanny goat, you know, a fur coat. I'm going to school in fur coat. And so I was, I was constantly getting searched and harassed and they'd find like a knife in my pocket and I'd say, you know, yo, my dad says carry this knife to protect yourself, whatever, whatever, and I just can't bring to school and I get in trouble. It just was a progression of things getting worse and worse. Speaking of that coat, somebody tried to rob me of one of those coats one day because since I failed eighth grade like a loser, all my boys were up in high school, so I'd go up there. I got out of school an hour before them, so I'd ride my moped up there. Sometimes i just walk, what the hell? And, and I'd go up there and wait for them to get out of school. So one day I'm walking along, mind my own business, and here come four or five guys in this car, it's blue Camaro. It's funny because the guy who tried to rob me was actually might see this because I'm friends with him on Facebook. He's actually a pretty decent dude. I got to know him actually be friends. But at the time, he jumps out of the car. Like, at first he said, what's up, man? I'm like, what's up? I'm just walking around on my business. And keep in mind, I got this knife in my pocket, switchblade. He jumps out of the car. He's like, what's up with that coat, man? I'm like, what's up? He's like, he's like run it. And I'm like, I pull up my knife, switchblade. I'm like, you got to take it, bro. You going to take it? Let me see you take it. And he's like, ah, and he got back in his car and took off. And of course, you know, that was, you know, was he going to take it or was he just, you know, bluffing? I don't know. But it was one of those things, man. You know, they worth a lot of money. And I was this little thug running around in them. I used to wear like field track suits and crap like this. It's funny. I was thinking about this girl. Her name was Michelle Thomas. Her mother ended up like divorcing and remarrying some dude with money. And they lived in Gross Point, this big, nice, like mansion. You know, we lived in like a lower middle class suburb. They lived in this big, like ritzy area. And she was having a birthday party. It was her birthday. So before we go over there, I had my, my boy Jimmy drive me by his cousin's house to pick up a bag of dope. And I was out, you know, I had to re up. So I was going to this party. I needed some weed to sell. So I went and picked like an ounce of weed. And then I stuffed it in my pocket and I go to this nice house and I ring the doorbell and the mother answers the door. She sees me in my fur coat and she's like, huh, who are you? I'm like, uh, Al Limbo, what's up? And she's like, oh, I've heard of you. She's like, oh, I gotta frisk you, make sure you don't have any alcohol on you. And I'm like, what? She starts frisking my pockets over here, but she doesn't hit the like inside pocket where this ounce of weed is. And she lets me in and I go in and end up getting everybody high. It was pretty funny. But this just goes to show you the type of kid that I was and somehow this mother who lived in a different city and learned who I was and was, you know, prepared for uh, me <laughs> to show up. Anyway, so eighth grade was really not the banner year for me, believe it or not. This is a true story. I got voted to be most likely to end up in prison. True story. I don't even know how that was a, an award. I won several awards. I won Best Dressed, I won Biggest Class Clown, and, and then I won Most Likely to End Up in Prison, which, you know, thanks everyone. I, I hope I fulfilled your uh, expectations. Yeah. Well, I, it, things just really got worse and worse for me in eighth grade. First of all, I wasn't doing any homework. I wouldn't do any, did nothing. I just go to school high and do nothing. I was in trouble, I was in detention. I was in the, the principal's office basically every day, every day. Think about how bad 
of a kid you have to be to end up in the principal's office every day. I mean, it was embarrassing. Every single day, you know, by, by third hour, I'm in the office sitting there like a dumbass. My like, vice principal hated me. His name is Kuznia. He was an Asian dude. You know, he had a Fu Manchu beard and he just hated me. And the main principal, Mr. Shichi, hated me too, but he wasn't as big a dick. But Kuznia, he hated me. And everybody just thought I was a freaking ass. So one day, they have this band come in. And this is how it all ends. They have this band come in to play for the kids, eighth grade kids. It was a terrible band, like a rock and roll band. And then in the middle of the band, they throw like t-shirts and stuff out to the kids and you catch it and they go, oh, I got it. So back in the day when it came to football, because I loved football, and by the way, I got banned from football in eighth grade for smashing some kid on the football field. And then you know, I had actually ended up breaking my coach's ribs by accident. It was terrible. But um, they pull a football out, a Nerf football. And they're like, ah, you know, they're rock and roll dudes. They're like, hey, who wants it? And I'm like, right here, right here, right here. And they're like, no, and he throws it like five people over and three rows down from me. I just died. I'm like, ah! Oh man, I just crushed like five people. I need some poor girl in the face and the ear. Actually, here in the ear, we are. Bam! But I heard like three different people are busted up. It's the middle of this concert, and I bam, hits the ball, crush it. Like, damn! My boys are all laughing because we were sitting on the top bleachers, and they just thought freaking that was hilarious. The, the principal, says, you know, come here, Limbo, come here, come here. Come down there, and he freaking points me to the hallway. I go up the hallway, and Kuznia. Now, he's like this stocky dude who everybody thought he was like, you know, a new karate, you know, because he was Asian. He's like, what the F wrong? He literally said the word, the F word. He's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Bam! And he smacks me. Like, smacks me, man. And I, I'm like, what the fuck? Bam! I smack him back. Bam! I'm like, bitch, you ain't my dad. You can't hit me. I'm like, you have no right to hit me and my dad. Wait till I tell my dad, F you bitch. I said, you know something going on. You can't touch me now. Meanwhile, my dad don't give a flying F. My dad would probably have been like, I'm sure he deserved it, man. Good for you. But then he don't know that. He thinks, you know, he just smacked one of the students, which you can't do. I said, F you, I'm out of here. And I left. And then they called and expelled me. You know, basically said, you know, he's expelled. We don't want him back. So what do you think I do now? Now I'm 15 years old, expelled, and selling dope. Now there was a lot of other kids in the neighborhood like who had been kicked out or dropped out of school and they were just a bunch of drug addicts, potheads and coke heads. And the next thing you know, I'm like, I could buy a teener of coke, smash up a teener of ephedrines, many things, to make an eight ball. And I could like sell grams to these stupid cokehead wannabes, you know, for like 75 bucks. It was gonna cost me like $20. I drive around my moped and sell dope all day. Weed and coke, weed and coke, that's it. That was basically how my whole year ended up. I mean, it was it was really bad. My one teacher, Mr. Shembry, he was huge dude. He always reminded me of like a, a Marine or a sailor, this big, like hairy chested, freaking part bald, freaking big barrel chested freaking dude. He hated me and I was scared of him, including me. I mean, I was freaking 100 pounds. I remember one time I got him so mad because I kept talking that he walks over and grabs my books and was like, it smashed it on the desk, it broke the desk in half, broke the, you know, the desk, shattered it, it both went flying. Man, and then another time he picked me up and he grabs me by my chest and he starts just flinging me around. He's like, shut up. I couldn't do nothing, man. He was just too strong, too big. 
And he was freaking a real douchebag. And one day he saw me selling some dope, selling a joint or something down the hallway. After school got out, everybody's running around. I'm at my locker. And he always kind of kept an eye on me to see what I was doing. But there were so many people around, I thought I could reach in and slip out. I had this little jar, a little tube with joints in it. A couple people asked me for joints. I'm like, yeah, you know, five bucks, five bucks. But man, he saw it. And he's like, Limbo, come here. And I'm like, what's up? He goes, come here. He, and he goes, well, grab my coat. And he goes, what's in your pocket? And I grab his wrist. I said, man, you can't go in my coat, man. What are you doing? He's like, what's in your pocket? I said, man, get off me. I said, you can't go in my coat. You don't have a warrant. You got a right. You ain't a cop. The fuck off me, man. He said, I'm calling Coogs. Come down here right now. You know, you need to be searched. I'm F you, man. Get out of here. I freaking ran out of there fast as I could. And that, that's just the kind of year I had, man. And, uh, you know, eventually after I got expelled, it got bad. And so, that was my turning point. I share these stories, and um, the reason I'm doing that is because if you're gonna get to know the whole story and the progression of how I became a writer and wrote not just that genre, but other genres too, you know, and of course how I, I ended up in prison, saying I'm not justifying anything I did, I'm not condoning my behavior, and just saying in my own defense that I had a rough childhood, I had a rough life, so you know, I'm grateful that I've been able to turn it around I'm grateful that I've been able to change myself for the better and now act appropriately because for the, this is the first time in my life that I've ever acted appropriately. Would you believe that I never paid taxes until like a year ago, two years ago when I got out of prison? Never, not once. I was 45 years old for the first time I ever paid taxes, which is uh, bad news if I don't get rich because uh, I got no social security coming, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, so that's going to conclude the episode of uh, my thing and it's for you to get to know a little about me and a little about what made me who I am and how I ended up being so screwed up. <laughs> but um, in the meantime, uh, subscribe because I'm doing this for a reason and uh, follow and share and share these, man. If you think this is funny or interesting, just share it with your boys, your people on Facebook, social media, anything like that. Also, I am the author of To Be a King, volumes one and two. My novels are... They're being called the next Godfather. People are saying that I am the next Mario Puzo. Some people have said I've written the greatest mafia tale that's ever been told. True story. Go read my reviews. They're all organic. You can get them on Amazon. Also, I own Our Thing Apparel. So you can go to OurThingApparel.com. Check out what we got. And we, we sell everything from, from high-end leather coats and jackets to tracksuits your hats. Everything. Anything you can name apparel-wise. We sell it. And it's custom-made. Mine says Detroit Our Thing with our logo. Well, you can get yours with Cleveland or Chicago or wherever you're from, you know, which makes it pretty cool because you're kind of embracing your, your city where you're from. You know, for Chicago, you're just like, Chicago, you know, our thing, that's our thing. You know, if you're from Miami, it's yours. We do that for you. So anyway, now you can follow me on social media. I have Garner Detroit is my Instagram. I should post more, but I suppose sometimes. And then author Gunnar Allen Lindblom is my Facebook. My personal Facebook page is kind of maxed out, uh, Gunnar Allen Lindblom. But you can go to author Gunnar Allen Lindblom and follow that. And then for now, you know how we do. We out.